Intended is brought to you in part by YTH, an initiative of ETR. YTH is a nonprofit that advances the health of youth and young adults through technology, and they're hosting their annual conference virtually on August 3rd through 5th, 2020. YTH Live is in its 12th year, and will focus on youth and technology and the impact of technology on the health of young people. Targeting overall health and wellness of people in the United States and abroad, YTH Live presents how innovative technology can be used to improve health outcomes. Covering topics like sexual and reproductive health, mental health, digital rights, and climate change, YTH Live will showcase the brightest minds and cutting-edge research. To learn more, head to YTH.org. Again, that's YTH.org. Um, so the best way to kind of give you an overview of this place, we have, it's a two floor building. We have, both floors have lab space. Um, this one's definitely being used more. And the simplest way to describe it is we do synthesis upstairs. We'll show you that lab. Um, I like to kind of, if you've seen Breaking Bad, it's our, it's our, it's, it's our synthetic oh, chemistry lab. Yeah. Um, <laughs> chemists will eye roll at me, but like that's the simplest way I like to describe it. Um, we're in Charlottesville, Virginia. And we're talking with Kevin Eisenfratz. So my name is Kevin Eisenfratz. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Contraline. We are a medical device company developing a male contraceptive. And Kevin's company, Contraline, they work in biotech. They've got this small brick two-story building that has chemistry labs and scientists and white coats, the whole deal. We drove up to meet them in Charlottesville from Durham, North Carolina, where MCI is based. We took the back roads, and it's about four hours if you go that way. As you drive up, the Carolina pines turn into farmland, and then things get a little more dense, and eventually you get to Contraline's little building. They're in an industrial part of the city, just a few minutes outside of downtown. They're sandwiched between a concrete supplier and a railroad. And all around this biotech startup are auto parts stores and gravel driveways and big trucks hauling materials around, and then this tiny two-story lab with chemistry and scientists in it. Inside, Contraline is trying to make the first male birth control one that's both long-acting and reversible. But they're not making a pill. So we're working on the first long-lasting, non-hormonal and reversible male contraceptive that uses a gel to occlude the vast deferens. So the vast are a pair of tubes. The vast deferens are two long tubes downstream from the testes in men. They're responsible for transporting sperm from the testes out into the rest of the world. In fact, the vast deferens are the same tubes that get cut during a vasectomy. What Kevin wants to do isn't too far away from a vasectomy, but it's fundamentally pretty different. Kevin's trying to put something in the vas deferens that blocks them up, something that creates a dam that can be removed at a point later in time, instead of cutting the tubes and sealing them off for good. Instead of doing that, we're simply inserting this gel inside and it blocks sperm from traveling through. You're probably familiar with a vasectomy, at least in principle. Men go to a doctor, they've got a short outpatient procedure, there's a couple of cuts involved, and because sperm can't flow through the vast deferens anymore, the man no longer has to worry about pregnancy. Recovery is pretty simple. Basically, the guy sits on a bag of frozen peas for a couple of days, they get to watch the March Madness, and voila, shortly after, everyone's back in business. But there is a catch. Vasectomy is intended to be a permanent method. Sure, they can be reversed, but it requires a long and delicate surgery. Microsurgery, in fact which requires special tools and techniques that reattach these tiny, tiny blood vessels. It's a procedure that's expensive and it doesn't always work. In Contraline's lab, they're trying to reimagine vasectomy by thinking about reversibility from the beginning. 
That's the number one thing that men have told us over and over. They don't want something that's permanent like a vasectomy. They don't want something that's single use like a condom either. So reversibility, we're working on it a couple different ways. And the first product that we're going to be bringing to market um, is a gel that lasts a couple years. And it's also after, uh, it's very effective for that time span. Um, and afterwards, it basically degrades or liquefies and reverses on its own. So the guy doesn't need to um, go get, in, get a reversal procedure and they could just decide if they want to get another one, another implant or not. And so we aim to position this a little bit kind of like an IUD for men. And something like an IUD for men, it just doesn't exist right now. Male contraceptive options are either very short term in condoms or they're supposed to be permanent, a vasectomy. Kevin thinks there's a hole in the market, one that he can fill with a reversible method, and that there are a few kinds of men that would be interested in something that isn't permanent. Men that haven't had kids yet and don't plan to for some time, men who are in committed relationships that may want to space their families out, or men that want to just help their partners in contraception. All of them might find something like this attractive. Yeah, I think that vasectomies are the current gold standard. There's half a million of them done in the US each year, and they're regarded as safe, right? And very, very effective. Vasectomies are really used by men that are family complete. They don't really care about the, per the, the reversibility of it. When you want a, re a vasectomy reversed, it's really difficult to join those really small two tubes back together, right? It requires, uh, I think, hundreds of sutures. It's about a, like a three hour long procedure. It's expensive, et cetera, et cetera. So, when we approach the problem, we're not trying to really replace vasectomies here. We're trying to create something a little more temporary, just like what IUDs are for women. Contraline's product approaches making a birth control in a physical way, instead of the pills and the drugs that you might be used to. Instead of disabling sperm or stopping the factory that makes them, why don't we just put up a big roadblock? Generally, this approach is called vas occlusion. Vas because, well, it's like a vasectomy. It uses the vas deferens and occlusion because it blocks sperm from moving through the vas deferens. Just like lots of methods of male contraception, vas occlusion isn't a new idea. It's been around since the 1970s, and it's had its ups and downs. But Kevin and colleagues have good reason to be excited. There's very, very few things in the contraceptive field that hasn't already been thought of, but I think just because they've been tried once and they didn't work 30, 40 years ago does not mean they won't work in the future. That's, that's what we're all about. Vast occlusion is not a new concept, but we're innovating on vast occlusion in totally new ways. Lots of people have Kevin's mindset. They want to see what's been done before. They want to take the learnings from them, and then they want to innovate. They want to move forward, fix the mistakes of the past. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk with the people who have picked up the ball and they're running with it. The people who have decided that they're the ones that can do what nobody's been able to do yet. The ones that think, sure. I can make a birth control for men. We're going to cover the spectrum of male contraceptives in development so that you have a better sense of what a choice-maximized future might look like. There's tons of different options that people are thinking about. There's Kevin's approach, which is like a set-it-and-forget-it IUD-style approach. There's something or a daily pill. And there's something or kind of an on-demand contraceptive, like take it right before sex and you're protected. All of these options are being worked on, and they all have some value to add. One thing we talk about in the field a lot is the method mix, a slate of options that all have different characteristics that different people might find appealing for whatever reason. If you have a big, broad menu, more people are likely to find something in it that works for them. And Kevin wants that method mix to really include men. I want to see a lot more male options, um, obviously, uh, but more so I want to see a menu of options. You know, I think that 
there's 30 options for women. I think there's a lot of room for improvement for female contraceptives as well. Um, but I think that the more options, the better, because it's a huge market. There's so many people worldwide and everyone has their own preferences. So to be completely honest, there's guys that are afraid of procedures. They're afraid of, in general, not just uh, one that's in their vast deference, right? So those guys, they too need an option and maybe they would love a pill or um, you know, an ointment they could rub on their shoulders. But I will tell you that there's so many men that are okay with having a quick procedure that gives them years of, of birth control, of effective contraception. So ContraLine's research, it represents just one way to create a male birth control product. Outside of a vast occlusive, there are drug-based solutions, there are hormonal methods, and there are ideas floating around that innovate on what you're used to. Birth control doesn't have to be a daily pill. It can take all sorts of different forms. And the people working on these products are academics and startups and scrappy little teams that are all playing the underdog. They're doing what the pharmaceutical companies won't. And they're all tackling the question of male contraception from different angles because reproduction is a complicated machine. And there are lots of ways to stick a wrench in its gears. And ultimately, the more directions we come at this from, the more we can grow that method mix. And we can have products that are daily, monthly, yearly, or patches or gels or things that work on demand or things that potentially could work for men and women together. And this is because with male birth control, sperm are so integral to the process of fertilization that they're the only cell that has to start in one body, leave, and get into another in order to fertilize an egg. And there's a big, long chain of events that are associated with that process. Even from a 30,000-foot view, this is immensely complicated. In this episode, we're going to do a biology lesson. We'll teach you a little bit about how reproduction works. Then we're going to take that lens and we'll look at some of the methods in development. We'll talk about how those methods might be a wrench in the complicated reproduction machine and what it might look like when they eventually make it to the shelf. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. From Male Contraceptive Initiative, this is Intended. I'm Logan Nichols. And I'm Kevin Shane. Support for Intended is provided by Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit that advances the research and development of new methods of male contraception. We're focused on a world with contraceptive equity, with options that can meet the needs of men and women together. I think that for me, being willing to engage um, in responsible and healthy sex as a part of human behavior will inherently change the way that we think about partnership, like sexual partnership, and hopefully create the opportunity for more of those like destigmatized conversations as well and openness to men wanting to take responsibility and support women on a broader scale. Because it takes two. Find out more information about male contraceptives and development and what you can do to help at malecontraceptive.org. Again, that's malecontraceptive.org. Okay, welcome back to Intended, the podcast where we talk about the past, present, and future of male contraception. I'm one of your hosts, Kevin Shane. In this episode, we want to give you an idea of the sort of products that are in development right now. The sorts of male contraceptives of the future. How will they be delivered? How will they work? 
Well, some of that depends on where you stop the process of reproduction. Do you stop the body from creating new sperm? Do you stop them from swimming properly? If we know where in that big long chain of events the contraceptive works, there are some things we can predict about the end product, even though there isn't anything on the market yet. And to go deeper into that, we're going to have to talk some biology. All those biological processes that could be interrupted to make the contraceptives of the future. But for now, I'll give you the broad view, looking at three big categories. The first one is the hormonal stuff. There are a few different forms of hormonal contraception for men in clinical trials right now, and they're working their way through the approval process. But this process is long, and we're still years and years away from seeing these hit the shelves. Simply put, hormonal male contraception works by stopping men from making new sperm. These hormones, regardless of if they are delivered by a gel, a pill, an injection, whatever, they interrupt the normal signals that tell the testes to make new sperm. Men will still ejaculate, but there won't be any sperm inside that could actually fertilize an egg and create an embryo. Our second category, though, it isn't a drug. Remember what Kevin Eisenfratz and Contraline are working on? That device that acts like a reversible vasectomy? Their device is an injection of a substance that blocks the passage of sperm. This may seem like a small thing, but devices are regulated differently by the Food and Drug Administration. That means they could be available to men much sooner than a drug-based option. The last category of male contraceptives is big, exciting, and, unfortunately, way further away than the hormonal stuff or reversible vasectomy. I like to refer to it as non-hormonal male contraceptives because, well, it's pretty much anything that's a drug that doesn't rely on hormones to work. We'll talk about why these methods are different than the hormonal methods in clinical trials, but in broad strokes, Hormones are a signal for lots of things in the body. If you start messing with things that control functions all across the body, it may result in what clinicians call off-target effects, effects that hit functions other than the one you want. Non-hormonal drugs are useful because they aren't supposed to be these big, broad signaling molecules. They're intended to target one really, really specific process. This is the single most exciting area in terms of possibilities. Because we're targeting super-specific processes, these methods, in theory, could have really low side effects. And because there's so many different ways to approach it, these products could have exciting characteristics. Think on-demand contraceptives that you take right before sex, a pill that men or women could use, or even drugs that have benefits beyond contraception. So with that in mind, we wanted to talk about how some of these processes work. Any male contraceptive is going to have to interrupt some link in the chain of reproduction. So let's find out how reproduction works, and we can tell you a little more about these methods might look like when they hit the market. From Logan Nichols, we've got some sex ed, but with fewer awkward diagrams than you're used to. The central piece of male fertility is a guy you're probably familiar with, sperm. So what does a sperm look like? Um, a sperm is very streamlined. It has a small head, very small head, just a few micrometers long, and then it has a very long tail. So it's a very long, very streamlined structure. And Dr. Debbie O'Brien has spent years studying sperm. Hi, I'm Debbie O'Brien. I'm a retired professor from the University of North Carolina. Uh, Debbie has had a long career in reproductive biology, reproductive mostly studying the generation and development of sperm. And sperm so I thought I'd bring her into the studio to talk through some things. I have to sit this close? Okay. Okay. 
So you probably have an idea of what sperm look like. A long, wispy tail attached to a small oval head. And you probably remember that the job of a sperm is to fertilize an egg. Well, that fertilized egg that eventually becomes a person, it gets half their DNA from mom and half their DNA from dad. And dad's half is packaged up in the head of the sperm. And that's basically the whole job of sperm, to deliver this genetic payload as fast as possible to a final destination. They're one of the most specialized cell types that humans can make because they've got this specific job that no other cell can do. But that process of getting a head, a tail, and so on, it's not quick. So let's talk about the production of sperm. That process is called spermatogenesis. It occurs in the testis, and it takes quite a long time. It takes 74 days to make a sperm, so roughly 10 weeks. So it's quite, it's quite a long time. And spermatogenesis takes such a long time because these sperm cells are coming from a special kind of cell type called stem cells. Stem cells are unique in that they aren't really one any kind of cell yet. You might have heard of other places where stem cells are, like bone marrow or the brain. And stem cells all have this unique property. They can commit themselves to transform into another cell type as they're needed. This process is called differentiation, and this makes stem cells crazy valuable to the body because they can constantly renew other cell populations. They're a constant factory, dividing to renew themselves and keeping the population of stem cells growing, while at the same time sending some of their new cells off to make the specific cell types that are needed. In the case of stem cells in the testes, those new cells that get sent off end up making new sperm, on the order of millions per day, every day. So stem cells are a it's a population of cells that can regenerate the lineage. So they divide and they retain uh, an undifferentiated cell population, but then some of the cells then move into differentiation and then develop. So we have to have that regenerating stem cell population in order to continue sperm throughout adult life. To make a sperm from a stem cell, we start kind of where you'd think, in the testes. Inside a man's testes are these populations of stem cells, and since they're the base stock that all sperm are made from, they have to have a way to replenish themselves. They do that through a process called mitosis, and it's the first phase of spermatogenesis. In a nutshell, this is where the cell goes through all sorts of changes and then divides into two cells that look exactly like the original. It's just this process that amplifies the stock over and over again. But of course, we need to make sperm from these stem cells. And that means that at some point, instead of making new stem cells, there has to be a commitment, a change in how the cells are multiplying. And when that commitment is made, a cell goes through a different process, meiosis. Meiosis is an interesting process because ultimately when it's finished, we'll end up with a cell that has half the number of chromosomes that we started with. It's very similar to mitosis in that there's division, but that half number is really important. It's especially important because it's how we get to a sperm cell that can match up with an egg that has the other half of the chromosomes needed. But for what it's worth, after meiosis, we still don't have fully formed sperm ready to go. There's no tail, no long streamlined structure. Spermatogenesis is how we create sperm, but we've only gotten a little bit of the way there. The third phase of spermatogenesis is called spermiogenesis, and basically this is a period of... of all of the changes that make a fairly typical round cell into the streamlined sperm. So all of those morphological changes happen in this last phase of spermatogenesis. And morphological changes mean that sperms start to look different. They get their tails and they go through other physical changes that make them look more like what you think of when you think of sperm. 
They're taking shape and becoming something closer to the final product. All of that is spermatogenesis, using a line of essentially immortal stem cells to create something that looks like and acts like sperm. And the whole process is a long, drawn-out thing that has tons of checkpoints, starts and stops, gateways and changes. And if you stop spermatogenesis, you can make a male birth control drug. I mean, that's simple, right? Use a drug to hit one of those checkpoints, turn off the process entirely, and voila, no sperm, no pregnancy. And there are a few things to consider if someone is making a drug that stops spermatogenesis. First, we really, and I mean really, don't want to harm the stem cell population. If we do, it could destroy that self-replenishing factory that's making new sperm all the time. And if the stem cells die off, that's it. No new sperm, ever. These cells renew themselves, and if they get wiped out, then there isn't anything left to make new sperm. Since reversibility is important, developers have to be super careful to make sure the stem cell population isn't harmed. Secondly, is that during those steps of mitosis and meiosis, the cells are dividing and all sorts of genetic changes are happening. The cells are preparing the DNA that's actually going to fertilize the egg and match up with mom's half of the chromosomes, and it's a delicate process. Any drug that even has a chance of creating viable sperm with genetic defects, that's a no-go. That means that any drugs working in this part need to be very specific about where and when they put a stop to spermatogenesis. But Debbie tells us there are advantages to targeting spermatogenesis. Researchers know a lot about it, and there are a lot of targets, meaning that there are a lot of little steps in that chain that a drug can hit in making a contraceptive. And even though there isn't a method on the market right now, because we know quite a bit about spermatogenesis, we know a couple of characteristics that products might have. And the first one is an onset time. What we mean by an onset time is that you can't start taking the drug and be protected against pregnancy immediately. It takes some time. And that's because the process to go from stem cell to sperm takes some time. And after that, there's even more steps before the little guys are ready for prime time. We can't just put up a big stop sign. Everyone that's already been through that checkpoint is still going to mature and become a fully fertile sperm. So this is a long time, and how long it will take a contraceptive approach to work depends on where you interrupt it in that process. If you stop spermatogenesis at the beginning, like the very beginning, it could be three, maybe four months of taking a drug and waiting and waiting before you can rely on it as birth control. About 120 days to become azospermic or have a low enough number of sperm that you're considered infertile. So that's four months to be, to be effective. It takes another 3.7, almost four months for reversibility. So these are very long timelines and that has an issue when you're developing a contraceptive. For some men, this may not be a big deal. If you're a planner, you know what you're looking for in terms of a family. You can deal with a few months of using condoms or a few months of waiting for sperm counts to come back up. But remember, spermatogenesis only takes 70 odd days. If we have to wait three or four months, what's happening there? Turns out, even after spermatogenesis, even after we've made these cells that look like sperm, they're not ready for prime time yet. All of this work of stem cells splitting and dividing and growing tails has been in the testes, and now they move out of the testes and into a series of tubes. And then they move out of the testis into a series of excurrent ducts. And the first one that's important in these ducts is the epididymis. Testes are kind of bean-shaped with a lump on the back. That lump is the epididymis. 
It's this crazy long, highly coiled tube that's really, really tightly packed. In fact, if you were to take it out and uncoil the tube into one big long line, it would be something like 15 or 16 feet long. See, sperm leave the testes and they enter this long tube. And once they're inside the epididymis, they move through it over the course of a week or so, and they mature in ways that start giving sperm function. Functions that make them finally really complete sperm. They give them the ability to swim and fertilize an egg. So that during that process, we get these maturational changes, and then that results in functional changes. Two that are very important are the ability to bind to the zona pellucida, which is a structure around the egg, and the ability to move in a forward direction. So those are the two critical features that occur. And it takes a week or so to move all the way through the epididymis. Once sperm finish this journey, they're finally mature. They have the shape and the structure, they've got tails, they've got the ability to swim, and they're like what you think about when you think of sperm. But there's one last push before they get out of the body and on their final mission. And they have to go through a structure that we've already talked about, the vas deferens. It's a long tube that uh, connects the tail of the epididymis um, ultimately to the urethra. The vas deferens is what's cut during a vasectomy, and it's what people like Kevin at Contraline are using as a way to make a long-acting birth control for men. It's a pipeline, a freeway, a high-throughput tunnel that serves to get sperm out of the testes and all the way through into the last of the male anatomy so they can be pushed out. And the vas deferens are surrounded by these muscle fibers that pulse with ejaculation to push sperm up and out. And if you stop sperm from passing through, one way or another, you can prevent sperm from getting out of the body. When we think of contraception, certainly the one that everyone is familiar with is vasectomy. We just cut the tube and sperm can't get through. Newer methods that are being developed are reversible occlusion of the vas deferens, number of products, or disrupting this muscular contraction so that you block seminal admission, but not block uh, ejaculation or orgasm. We know that vasectomy and vas occlusive devices prevent sperm from physically passing through the vas deferens, but there are some drug-based contraceptives in development that work by preventing muscles from pushing sperm along. Men would still orgasm and libido shouldn't be affected, but little if any fluid would come out alongside the orgasm. And so that's it. Once sperm leave the body, they're just shot from a gun and propelled to their final destination. Okay, so we've reached this phase, but are we ready for fertilization? No, not quite. <laughs> we still have more changes that occur in the female reproductive tract, and those are also essential uh, to achieve fertilization. As it turns out, all these changes and maturations have only set the stage. Once ejaculated, sperm still aren't ready to fertilize an egg, and there are steps they have to go through in order to do so. Steps that can be targeted for a male birth control option. So we've said sperm can move, uh, swim very rapidly, and initially they swim in a relatively straight line. That's called progressive motility. But after they're, they're in the female tract, they develop a more asymmetric, rigorous, vigorous motility pattern. So it's a, often described as a whiplash type of motility. Motility is a normal feature of mature sperm. If you put them in a dish, they'll swim in a direction pretty steadily. But when sperm get into the female reproductive tract, they go crazy. Signaling molecules in the new environment tell sperm they're in the right place, and they start to push. 
they move faster and they move harder and that helps them get to their ultimate destination. And once they get there, they go through one last big event. It's called the acrosome reaction. You see, the human egg is surrounded by a tough exterior. It's protective and it prevents anything from getting in that shouldn't. But it presents a barrier to sperm, one they have to overcome to actually fertilize the egg. And they have to put little sperm-sized holes in that protective wall so they can finally break through. And sperm have the tools. They've got enzymes that digest the layer. They're just stored in the head of sperm, ready to go when called upon. And that's the acrosome reaction. And so this bag of enzyme has to get open and the enzymes have to get out. And that process is called the acrosome reaction. So we create these little holes and then the enzymes are released and are then capable of helping the sperm get through the investments around the egg. And all these processes happening in the female reproductive tract, they're still prime targets for a male birth control drug. Even though they're happening in someone else's body, a drug can disable these features of sperm and make it to where they can't swim, or that bag of enzymes gets opened way too early and it never makes it to the finish line. If a guy takes a drug like this, it could just disable sperm before they ever leave his body. But in theory, a woman could also take drugs that target these processes. Think about it. It doesn't matter where a drug is delivered from, as long as it gets to the target in a way that prevents pregnancy. You want to open that bag of enzymes up early? Well, early can be in the male or female, since that last step is so late in the process. These sort of unisex contraceptives are kind of the holy grail. I like to call it cooperative contraception. Imagine, no hormones, no gender disparity. Men and women could take the exact same pill. And one cool thing about targeting late-stage events like motility and the acrosome reaction is that they're some of the last things that happen in fertilization. You could go to dinner as a couple, pop the same pill with dessert, and be protected from pregnancy by the time you get home. But there are hurdles. Since the targets are so very late in the process, drugs have to be so very effective. And also, sperm can stay viable in the female reproductive tract for days after sex. If the drug's effectiveness isn't long enough, then you might have to keep taking the drug well after sex. Unfortunately, drugs like this are super early stage research. Like, they're not even tested in animals for most part, much less people. So it's going to be decades before anything next generation hits the market. Like, multiple decades. The biology that we talked about, it's just the foundational knowledge. It lays out the pathway and tells you how you could stop a process to make a male birth control. But making a drug that stops anything in there takes years and years of research, and then years and years of testing to make sure that it's safe and works. But there is a birth control option for men that's been through decades of research, and it's jumped through a ton of hurdles, and it's pivoted, and it's changed, and it's stayed strong. It's a method that uses hormones to stop spermatogenesis, the production of sperm. And that's right at the very beginning of the timeline, and it's being tested in men right now. This isn't the first time hormonal contraception has been tested in men. There have been clinical trials testing for safety and effectiveness for decades, and all these tests iterated, and they grew on one another. They always fought to get closer to that check mark from the FDA that says, yes, this works well enough and it's safe enough to move along. And for one reason or another, nothing quite met the requirements to move up and through that approval process. But this latest trial is hoping to be the one that goes the distance. They're using a new delivery method. It's not a pill or an injection or an implant like you might think. This one's a gel. It's not a lotion. It's like a, a, a gel so that it's not so watery. And you apply it on both shoulders and both upper arms. 
it because it has hydroalcoholic gel, it will dry in a few minutes. Dr. Christina Wang is a lead investigator at LA Biomed, where clinical trials are ramping up. And this trial is big, enrolling over 400 couples, yes, couples, and taking place in seven countries. Clinical centers in here, Seattle, Kansas, in the United States, in Santiago, in Chile. This is a big deal, an international trial with hundreds of people. And these 400-odd couples will be using the gel for over a year as their only method of birth control. They'll be using it literally to prevent pregnancy. Inside the gel are two hormones, nesterone and testosterone. And these hormones, together, shut down the signaling pathways that tell the testes to make new sperm. The gel is absorbed through the skin and go to your circulation, and then it will it stops the production of the two hormones that control the function of the testes. And the two main functions of the testes that Christina is talking about are creating sperm and making testosterone for the body. Now, I already know what you're thinking. Isn't testosterone what makes a man manly? Do we really want to turn that off? I'd like to dispel some things right now. Yes, there are all sorts of biological and sociological relationships between maleness and testosterone. But using this gel isn't going to make your voice high, or it isn't going to make men suddenly less manly. And that's because the gel contains testosterone. It's added back into the mixture in order so that the levels of testosterone everywhere else in the body are normal. The function of test is really to make the male hormone and make sperm. Although circulating testosterone may be low, but it's replaced by the, the male hormone or the testosterone they supply on the skin. We check them and we want to make sure that testosterone is normal, by the way. And by adding testosterone back into the equation, this gel can minimize the side effects that eventual patients might be worried about. As long as levels of testosterone everywhere else in the body stay high enough, nothing will really change, except the testes will stop making their own testosterone along with sperm. But in the court of public opinion, hormonal contraception is always going to be tied to side effects. There are a ton of stories out there about female contraception and hormones and devastating side effects and unease and people stopping using their contraception because of it. But at this point, the things that they're seeing in the male gel trials, they're pretty minimal. I think the main effect is that sometimes maybe they have an acne and sometimes they have a, a weight gain, not in everybody. And essentially, that's it. Now, a gel is an interesting way to deliver a contraceptive. Patients rub it into their shoulders and their upper arms once a day, and that could be a plus or a minus to some people. Sure, there are no pills, but patients still use it daily. It's harder to take with you compared to a pill. And because it's a gel with drugs, hormones, sitting on top of the skin, you have to wear a t-shirt to prevent transferring the active ingredients over to other people. That's right. If partners get too much of this stuff on their skin, they can see effects that they're not looking for even though they aren't applying it directly. And because the gel shuts down spermatogenesis, or the creation of new sperm, men are going to have to take this drug for a while before they can actually rely on it as a contraceptive. Remember, it takes some time for sperm to be created, mature, and get ready for prime time. In some cases, a few months. But this gel would be an option, an option that men currently don't have. And the gel isn't the only hormonal method being tested right now. It's just the furthest along and being tested in the most people. There are also two others that are in an earlier stage of clinical testing, and they have a special sort of approach. So they are much earlier on. We finished the phase one study on two compounds, and both of them are like brothers and sisters. 
So we have the 11 beta MNT and the DMAU, and the two of them are are really similar, and they are um are different from a male hormone in that they the compound itself has both male hormone activity and the female hormone progestin activity. So it's two action in one compound. So we have the. I won't bother with having you remember the names, but essentially what's happening here is that the gel that's got hormones in it. Two hormones that are both needed to make it work well enough to use as a contraceptive, but the compounds that Christina's talking about, the brother and sister ones, individually they do by themselves what it takes two hormones in the gel to do, and they're both being tested because they're just a little bit different, and one may work slightly better than another as science moves forward, which would give it a better chance of getting through that rigorous clinical trials process. Another interesting thing is that these brother and sister compounds aren't gels. They're being formulated in pill form, as well as an injectable, and then an injectable means that we could be seeing a contraceptive that isn't daily, but instead works for a few months between injections. Based on the monkey studies, it shows that this、um, injectable is very long-acting. So、uh, we are going to have a long-acting reversible contraception. So, the question that's probably been on your mind: When will these things actually get approved and on the market? The answer isn't as exciting as you might hope. It's about ten years, and please spare me the "it's been ten years away for fifty years" joke that I already made. Think about it: the gel, the one that's furthest along, it's about to start a trial that's going to last upwards of a year, and then there's a whole other phase of clinical trials to happen after that one completes. For all the remaining studies, there's data analysis and publishing, and that final phase of trials that's going to be even longer and have more complexity, and of course, more data analysis and Reporting to the FDA, who has to review the data and double-check everything and make a big hard decision, you get the picture. Making a drug is hard. Making a drug that's successful is even harder. And all drugs face this hurdle—a long clinical timeline that takes decades and decades. But now we want to talk about something else that's coming down the pipeline, something that may be able to circumvent that big long clinical process, or at least make it shorter, and do it because it's not a drug. It's a device. Kevin Shane brings you that story. So we've talked about this before. Men have only two options for birth control: condoms and vasectomy, and both of them are kind of imperfect, especially in a world where men and their partners are looking for new methods of contraception. The field has changed a lot, and well, the world has changed a lot. And、um, you know, there's more and more interest on the part of men as condoms. You know. Disrupt sex, and、uh, you know, are not certainly not a perfect method、uh, in many ways. And vasectomy has some limitations. One of the big issues around vasectomy is the fact that it really should be considered a permanent method. This is Mark Barone, and he's a senior scientist at the Population Council. My name is Mark Barone. I am currently a senior scientist at the Population Council's. Center for Biomedical Research, which is Mark's work, covers a lot of different areas of reproduction. But new kinds of vasectomy are an area of particular interest to him. Mark's research was always focused on reproduction, and after spending time with animals, he moved to studying human reproduction. And he's seen a lot about how vasectomy has changed over time, and how people have tried to make vasectomy more approachable and reversible for years. You know, my interest in male contraception maybe. It partially stems from the fact that one of the very first 
things I did after I started working in the field of human reproductive biology and physiology was work on a series of studies related to vasectomy. And it, it, those studies were mostly about various clinical aspects of vasectomy, but they led eventually to changes in international and national guidelines for um, how vasectomy services were provided and some of the recommendations uh, related to the procedures to be used. Condoms are, well, condoms. They're a barrier method that goes over the penis and prevents sperm from actually interacting with a partner. They're cheap and ubiquitous and easy, but also come with a 15% failure rate. Vasectomy, on the other hand, is well over 99% effective. For birth control, it's up there with IUDs and implants as one of the most effective methods available. But the catch there is vasectomy is permanent. At the top of the show, we talked about Kevin Eisenfratz and how his company, Contraline, is working to change vasectomy to make it reversible. Another approach that has been tried for since probably the, you know, the original reports are maybe in the 1960s, but I'm going to guess that somebody was out there trying other things even before then. You know, the ideal vasoclusion uh, uh, technique would be something that would be simple, easy to do, so some way of blocking the vas in a simple, easy way that could be done by one healthcare provider, and ideally would be reversible. Broadly speaking, any method that's trying to block the transport of sperm without severing the vas deferens is called vasoclusion. They prevent sperm from moving through those long tubes that connect the testes to the rest of the reproductive system. And there are a few potential benefits to a method like this. Benefits that might make them even more attractive than new drug-based methods of male contraception. Firstly, and we'll go into this more in a second, the way these methods function could let them work for years without needing to take pills, get checkups, so on and so forth. Remember how Kevin Eisenfratz described it like the IUD for men? That's what he means by that. Years of protection with no maintenance required. Another benefit is that they're not drug-based, meaning they act by blocking sperm, not chemically interacting with it. And that should mean lower side effects. Something that's perhaps very attractive, certainly in the relative near term, is that if, if a vasoclusion product is working by blocking the passage of sperm through the vas, it's likely to be considered a, a medical device by regulatory authorities, as opposed to a drug, which uh, most likely means the process of getting approval would be quicker. We're 10 years away from hormonal methods, the ones furthest along being tested in men, 10 years away from getting them approved. A vasoclusive device could be there faster than that, even though there aren't any of them working their way through FDA approval yet. But, of course, as is the case with most things in the world of male contraception, there have been people working on vasoclusion for decades already. And, well, we wouldn't be having this conversation if any of them had succeeded yet. So, you know, as I, as I had mentioned previously, that at least in the published literature, there is work on vasoclusion starting in the 1960s. But, you know, it's most likely certain that people were experimenting pr prior to that time. But so it's been, you know, 60 years, basically. And to date, unfortunately, there isn't uh, anything that is approved. These devices, vasoclusive devices, they can come in a few different forms, but the basic concept is the same with all of them. 
Instead of snipping the vas deferens, something gets inserted or injected that blocks the flow of sperm. And so then in, there have been studies on two different, I guess, major categories. One is devices, something that you could place into the vas, like a plug or a, a little valve that could actually be turned on and off. Or the other, op- the other main option is something that is injected into the vas in some, in some sort of liquid state that then becomes in some way a more solid state and actually blocks the vas. Within these categories, there are lots of examples. Projects coming from different countries using different materials or techniques, and these tests went on and on through the 1990s. Some of the methods had materials that were too tough to work with, or there were unexpected side effects. Or some of them, like the little valve Mark mentioned, were just too far future to work with existing technology. Fun aside, that little valve one is called the BIMIC, and it's this tiny little switch, like a light switch, that gets implanted in the vase, and you flip the switch on and off to open and close the valve. It's being invented by a German carpenter who claims to have implanted one in himself, but there's no evidence if it actually works or not. But there are, thankfully, some options that are uh, being explored now and that may eventually uh, lead to a a successful product. One of those uh, is called uh, Vazdeblock. I don't know how to say that. Do you know how to say it? Vazdeblock? Vazdeblock is a small plug that gets inserted into the vase. But interestingly, while most vase occlusive devices are intended to be administered in a procedure similar to a vasectomy, Vazdeblock proposes an insertion through the urethra and a removal via the same sort of procedure. Um, but then there are several, there are three other products that I'll just mention, which all are, you know, kind of work in a, in a similar way, which is that, they're, that they would be uh, put in the location similar to where a vasectomy was done. Um, two of the three are MCI grantees. One of those methods is being developed by Contraline and is a hydrogel that blocks the flow of sperm when it's injected into the vase. It's designed to degrade on its own after a certain amount of time, something like a couple of years, restoring fertility naturally. And then um, there are two other methods that are related to each other. One which is being worked on in India, which is actually the product that could potentially be the first uh, vasoclusion technique that's approved uh, by a regulatory authority somewhere in the world, because data on it have uh, been submitted to the Drug Regulatory Authority in India, and that's a product that's called RISUG, which stands for Reversible Inhibition of Sperm Under Guidance, and has been something that has been being worked on for, uh, I don't know, probably 40 years. RISUG is a gel that, when injected in a procedure similar to a vasectomy, forms a plug that stops the flow of sperm. Interestingly, RISIC also seems to have an effect on sperm function. It not only blocks it, but it prevents sperm from being able to fertilize eggs, even if they do make it through. RISIC is the only vasoclusive that's currently being used by men or tested by men in clinical trials. A scientist in India has been exploring RISIC for decades, and recently, RISIC was reported to receive approval for use in India. But importantly, that approval doesn't include reversibility, which hasn't been proven in men. But the RISIC team has submitted to Indian regulatory authorities, and all signs point to it being the first vasoclusive device to get approved and out there on the market. So they've conducted a series of studies and shown that it is to be, that it is uh, very effective. And 
submitted have now submitted data to the drug authorities in India and are waiting to hear about whether or not it will be approved. So it's quite possible that Rice could be the first vasoclusion approach that is approved. The last potential vasoclusion uh, product that I want to talk about is something that's called vasogel, which is uh, related to Rysog. So about 10 years ago, an organization in the U.S. called the Parsimus Foundation bought the international rights to the Rysog technology. The Parsimus Foundation is a nonprofit that picked up the rights to Rysog with the intention of developing it for a U.S.-based market and getting it through the regulatory process here with reversibility as a part of the equation. And it works in a similar way in that this viscous liquid would be injected into the baths, again, in an area similar to where a vasectomy would be done and using a similar approach to um, exteriorizing or to bringing the baths uh, out. So the injection could be done. The viscous liquid is injected and then it forms very quickly into this blockage that would completely block the sperm. And again, the idea is that the basal gel would be reversible by injecting um, another compound that would basically dissolve the plug. Vassal gel offers a benefit in that its developers think it could last for years, multiple years, like a decade maybe. And especially for young men, that could be appealing. Years and years of protection with no maintenance required, no follow-up appointments, no daily pills, and importantly, a single procedure at the beginning and one at the end when a man is ready to have it reversed. But there are steps between here and there. There have been no trials yet uh, done in humans. But so hopefully one of these methods that's you know, currently under, under investigation uh, you know, could potentially come to the market. And while these methods have their challenges, like any male contraceptives, there's a lot of incredible chemistry and engineering going into these products. There is considerable potential for long-acting, reversible male contraception. And it's exciting to think about the impact these can and will have on the larger male contraceptive field. And speaking of the larger field, vasoclusives are but one subset of the larger non-hormonal category. There are lots of methods that can truly expand the options available to men and women. MCI's executive director, Heather Vidat, is now going to unpack the rest of the non-hormonal field and share some of the other products being developed there. Hormonal contraception and vasoclusion are pretty simple when it comes down to the science of it. The hormonal methods just prevent you from making new sperm by shutting down the signaling pathways that tell the body to make more, and the vasoclusives act as a reversible approach to vasectomy, pretty much a temporary dam in the way of sperm transport. And this simplicity means we know some things about the methods themselves. Because hormonal methods target sperm production, there's a need to measure sperm count, and it can take a while for all the sperm that have already been produced to exit the system. That means that men will have to take a drug for some amount of time, measured in weeks, before they can rely on it as an effective method of contraception. These hormonal methods are in clinical trials right now, but are still a very long way from being on the market. As for vasoclusives, they provide a set-it-and-forget-it approach to contraception, but they will require a medical procedure, and you'll still have to measure sperm counts before you can rely on it as birth control. They have the unique benefit of being considered a device, which means they could be here sooner, but their timeline is still measured in years. 
But what if I told you that there are tons of other ways to make a contraceptive, ways that could make products that are fast-acting and maybe don't look anything like the contraceptives we know today? Remember the life of a sperm we talked about earlier? We can target specific steps across that huge life cycle of a sperm and find places in that long chain of events to stick a wrench into. Because there are so many individual steps and so many of them are essential for fertility, there are lots of steps where researchers can design drugs specifically for individual links of the chain, effectively targeting one step to bring the whole process to a halt. And this brings us to our final category of male contraceptives, non-hormonal. This is a blanket term and it doesn't describe just one mechanism of action. Non-hormonal contraceptives are really just drugs that are designed for specific, essential steps in that big, long process. Any of them, really. Spermatogenesis, sperm maturation, sperm motility, fertilization, it's all part of the non-hormonal landscape. That means that in this category, methods that target spermatogenesis might look like hormonal contraception. They would have to have the same sperm count checks, the same lead time before you could rely on them, and they focus on breaking the same link of the chain, just in different ways. But non-hormonal methods have the advantage of being able to hone in on a single essential link of the chain, which means they might have fewer side effects. And depending on where you pick in this process, the drugs will have different characteristics. Targeting spermatogenesis has that lead time. Some men might have to take the drug for a few months before they can rely on it as effective birth control. Not only that, it'll take the same amount of time to come back as it did to go away. Once you stop taking the drug and restart spermatogenesis, all the new sperm have to go through that long pipeline before they're ready to fertilize an egg. But drugs that target sperm maturation or transport are further down that lifetime of a sperm. These targets also might not have as long of a lead time since the sperm have made their way through some of that months-long development process. Now remember, these processes, sperm production, maturation, and transport out of the body, those all take place inside the body of a person who produces sperm. You'll make a drug specifically for men and deliver it to men. But there are still steps to go before the sperm fertilizes an egg. There are still places to contracept even after the sperm leaves the man's body. Those places are in drugs that target sperm motility and fertilization. These targets are really interesting because they're at the end of the line, the last steps before sperm and egg meet. And drugs that target motility and fertilization could theoretically be delivered in either men or women, since these processes take place in the female reproductive tract. Who cares how the sperm got incapacitated, if it was a drug from the man or the woman? As long as the sperm can't finish the job, you've got yourself a contraceptive. Since motility and fertilization happen all the way after ejaculation, we know a few things about what these drugs could look like too. First of which is that they could be on-demand contraceptives. For instance, you take a pill 20, 30 minutes, or an hour before sex, and then you're protected. Since these drugs are pretty far away, we don't really know what the timeline would be like, and there's still a lot of questions to be answered. But to get a little pie in the sky for a moment, there's the potential for men and women being able to use the same drug, like the exact same pill or implant or whatever, and really truly be able to participate in contraception equally. It's a long ways away and difficult to really understand all the complexities of how we might make that happen right now, but it's theoretically possible. And that would be pretty cool. And for what it's worth, because we're at the early stages of development, non-hormonal contraceptives targeting any of these processes could take lots of different forms. A pill, sure, 
but also implants, gels, patches, all of those things are options because we're really looking at lots of these targets from the beginning. You can design whatever delivery system you want if the development works out that way. The non-hormonal landscape is a whole new world with lots of pathways to make contraceptives that really meet the needs and lifestyle of the user. But there's a catch. Once you pick a target, once you start actually making a drug, it can be 20 or more years before you get something on the market. That's what I mean when I say non-hormonal methods are a long ways away. And that's if things go according to plan. And while there are tons of non-hormonal male contraceptive targets, there isn't a lot of money to push them all forward. On top of that, the big drug developers, the ones that have all the money and expertise to pump out new drugs quickly, they're not interested. There are some non-hormonal drugs that have been in development by small pharmaceutical companies, but nothing that's ready for FDA clinical trials yet. Their timeline may be shorter than the 20-year mark, but it's still a long time to wait. That's resulted in a landscape of non-hormonal male contraceptives that is exciting, but forced to be a bit scrappy. Companies are taking small pharma approaches, carefully moving methods one step at a time. There's a slew of academics trying to understand the enzymes and processes that can be interrupted for contraceptive reasons, but as I think you get by now, money is tight. And that's the 30,000-foot view. It's how the different approaches work and some basic ideas about what they might look like. Next week, we're going to zoom in a little. We're going to take you up close and personal with people working across that spectrum, because just as sperm have a life cycle, so does drug development. We'll start in the academic sector and show you how drug development starts, then take you through a small startup working on getting their drug to clinical trials. After that, we'll go beyond the development side and get into the clinical side, talking with an investigator behind the hormonal contraception being tested in men right now. That's next time on Intended. Special thanks for this episode goes out to Catherine Carpenter and the MCI Board of Directors. Additional thanks to Lenita Dorflinger, Greg Grover, Elaine Listener, and Regine Citric Ware. Music from Blue Dot Sessions. Intended is written and produced by myself and Kevin Shane out of the offices of Male Contraceptive Initiative in Durham, North Carolina. Our executive director is Heather Vidot. I'm Logan Nichols. Intended is a project of Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the development of reversible, non-hormonal contraceptive options for men. For more information or to donate to our cause, visit malecontraceptive.org. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and other social networks by searching Male Contraceptive. You can find more information about who MCI is supporting on our website, including profiles on Contraline, Vasal Gel, and other grantees at malecontraceptive.org. If you'd like more information about the different mechanisms and methods of male contraception, we've detailed some of them on our website. Head over to malecontraceptive.org and navigate to The Pipeline. We'll put a link in our social media. If you're interested in participating in the hormonal male contraceptive trials, we've dropped in a link for that as well. If you like Intended, leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. Thanks for listening. And now, for something completely different. Me, 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 I'm back. Okay.